Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. All right, guys, welcome back to the show, the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Yannick Kujo Virgil, and I'm super excited for our guest today. Our guest today is Chris Mfume. Chris is a founder of CLD Partners, a real estate investment and development and asset management firm focused in the mid-Atlantic market. CLD provides sustainable, well-designed, thoughtful program spaces across workforce housing, mixed-use income housing, affordable and market rate housing. As a managing partner, Chris Fume is responsible for leading all development and investment activities and guiding the firm's projects through inception to completion. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Honor. Really appreciate it. So a little bit of backstory. You know, I met Chris really off Clubhouse a couple of years ago, I want to say. And so we connected offline and I thought that he was really a sharp guy. He has an interesting background. And, you know, Chris, I'd love for you to give the listeners a little quick insight on your story and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So my real estate career really started in D.C. Um, I graduated from college down in North Carolina back in 2012, immediately moved to D.C., started taking a job there, working in the Navy Yard. Um, and what I got to really see is how that area is transformed. If you're familiar with DC at all, the Navy Yard is the most dense residential neighborhood. And I really got to see this neighborhood go from being an old industrial basic kind of wasteland um, to this thriving mixed use area. I wanted to figure out how to be a part of that, decided I wanted to get into real estate, then subsequently decided I wanted to get in development and uh, quickly realized that uh, it was not the easiest path to take. Uh, I got laughed out of a lot of rooms when I told him I just wanted to hop right into it. Uh, you know, you need 10 years experience. And of course, it's like the chicken or the egg thing. How do I get the experience? You won't hire me, that type of deal. So um, I immediately started working at trying to make myself more valuable. So I did that in a couple ways. I started a class at ULI where I learned how to model. So I taught myself how to model, which was a, a big thing. I guess like a big theme throughout uh, my career would be taking initiative and trying to add value to other people. Uh, number two, I started working at Renato. I started temping there in the acquisitions department, just trying to teach as much as possible and just improve my toolkit. After that, I went to a couple of events and there was a guy speaking. His name was Michael Beattie, who ended up being my first boss. And uh, he was speaking about a big project he was taking on in Baltimore. I ended up pulling him aside afterwards, asking him, just kind of telling him I wanted to learn more about real estate. Uh, he invited me to the office. We ended up meeting, and that became the first meeting, uh, the, the start of me chasing him around for actually seven months, showing up basically everywhere he was, stalking him, essentially. <laughs> and every time I'd see him, you know, I'd shake his hand. At the time, he was going through some city approvals, and he had like 12 hearings. So I stayed for the whole hearing, which would be two, three hours not be able to speak to him or anything like that and just shake his hand at the end. Good job, Mr. Beatty. Good job, Mr. Beatty. Really enjoyed it. And at the last hearing, he was like, you're not going to leave me alone, are you? I was like, I'm not. He's like, you should come work for me. And then I went to go work for him and it became a beautiful, beautiful mentorship, apprenticeship type of situation where he really taught me the ins and outs of the business. And I got to do everything nobody else wanted to do, 
which is all the stuff you need to do in order to really learn the business. So that's how I got here. That's, you know, it's, it's funny that I think that we have somewhat of a similar story because for me too, you know, I didn't go to school for real estate. I went to school for kinesiology, you know, something that has nothing to do with real estate. And like, I kept getting rejected from the big shops like CoStar, you know, some, some private equity firms because I had nothing on my resume. And so for me, it was kind of like the same hustle of like, I wanted to get that start in commercial real estate, but I really didn't have the experience, right? So it just came down to persistency and just hunger, right? F- figuring out like who who are the players in the area, and go work for them, right? Because they, that's that's the that's the probably the best way to accelerate that learning curve, which a lot of people struggle with when getting into commercial real estate. Is that the same kind of mentality that you had too? Exact same mentality. I mean, the best way to learn is is finding an expert in the space. And just cop- I mean, we're not trying to recreate the wheel here, right? People have had success in this career previously. What have they done? Let's see if we can follow those steps. And I think that's the quickest way to get there and accelerate your career. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, persistency really just rings when I when I hear you just talk about like your story, because a lot of people, you know, they they, they want to get into the real estate space, specifically maybe development. And they just say, well, you know, I, I can't do it because, you know, I don't have this. So I don't have that. But, you know, the quickest way, I think, to go forward, you know, in anything that you do, like you said, is just to latch on to someone who's actually done it before, um, because real estate development is it's, it's a tough industry to break in, you know, right. and especially when you don't have the credentials, you know, you you can't really stick out, you know. So kudos to you and your hustle and your drive to actually get to that step. So what caused you to transition to start your own firm? You know, why not just stick it out and kind of listen to what folks have said, you know, stay in real estate development for 10 years and then go start your shop? You know, what 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 was that moment that that made you change that thought process? So for as far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I think since I was 11, you know, my dad would have me reading Black Enterprise and I I wouldn't really understand or anything like that. And I really did not get it then. I didn't even know it was making an impression. But as I got older, I had this thought in my head that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I don't even really know where it was planted. But my guess is that it came from those type of moments, those type of conversations. So I remember looking at uh, Black Enterprise had a BE 100, like top 100 companies. And I remember two people standing out. There was a guy named Tom Moorhead. Um, who runs a whole bunch of dealerships out of Virginia. He was the largest black-owned car dealer in the country. Um, so that was that was a dream of mine also. And then the second one was Don Peebles, who had ran up, I think, about $700 million at that point um, in black enterprise. And I remember, I'm like, okay, well, I want to be an entrepreneur because ownership is the only way to really start to reach these upper, upper echelons of financial freedom. So that's always been a goal. I went to go work for Michael that that first job and I told him from day one, hey, look, I, I want to be you. Like I want to develop into the type of person that does actually what you do. I'm not going to be here forever. Um, but if that's okay, I'm going to hustle for you as hard as possible here. I don't care how much you pay me. I'm just here to really learn. And I I actually told him that I consider my time with you. Am I going to get access to you? That was an important thing. Am I going to be able to speak to you? How often am I going to be able to do that? Because that to me is a part of my compensation. That's better than money in a lot of situations. And so I told him that and right away to his credit, I mean, he threw me to the sharks 
right away. It had me modeling, had me running huge deals like Old Town Mall. We had 2000 units um, that he had me managing right off the bat. You know, the guy with, you know, straight out of straight out of nowhere, basically helping manage these projects for him. And, you know, he counted me to learn along the way. So I have always kind of had the entrepreneurial bug. Uh, I didn't know how I was going to get there, but we also talked earlier about really looking at other people's careers and modeling off of that. I had seen, I had read Don Peebles book. He did it. Barry Sternlich, Stephen Ross. I mean, uh, Herman Russell. I mean, there's just so many different people that have done it before us. And once you start reading, the success really leaves clues, right? It all, almost every single person that's successful follows like the same, like five, five or six principles. It's really not as much of a mystery once you start to read these books and these themes pop up over and over again, persistence. Um, there's just so many different things. Success leaves clues. Yeah. And I, and I like to, you know, recently I've been giving the, the, the analogy of like the wildcat, right. Since, you know, I'm a former football player, right. You remember the wildcat back in 2006, sure. the Miami Dolphins started running it. And then everybody, even in high school, we were running the wildcat right. <laughs> back in 06, 07. And what you said about success leaving clues, I mean, it's so it's it's expensive to reinvent the wheel, right? It's expensive and time consuming to like butt your head on on something which someone probably along the way already did. And so trying to like spend time and money with regards to reinventing the wheel and just doing things on your own, I, I honestly feel like that's the biggest way to incur a lot of pain and waste a lot of time. Right. So similar to, you know, your your, you know, thought process of getting in with a shop and just learning the business is something that I did as well. When you're starting off in the world of commercial real estate, especially when you don't have that background, like education is the best form of currency. And so a lot of people, you know, they might jump into the game and, and their thought process is, you know, I want to make a bunch of money. You know, I want to do the biggest deal. I want to get money. But I've found that when you focus on just educating yourself at least for one year and attaching yourself to someone who has done it, I mean, man, I mean, that that can probably put you like 2x the time ahead of the curve. Whereas if you would have tried to do it all by yourself, you would probably be much less behind or like I said, incur you know a lot of pain. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, look, there's so many... There are so many less excuses today, in my opinion, because you can go on YouTube and you can learn pretty much anything. Mm, more, right? The good old YouTube university. Yeah, YouTube university. You can lose yourself for hours. I mean, you could teach yourself. If you want to become an electrician right now, you go to YouTube. I guarantee you type in want to become an electrician. You're going to get, you know, 100 videos on, on how to do it. And there's so many resources. So I really just think we have any excuse. I mean, there's books, there's mentors, there's all these people. I know this is the approach that you've had, you know, you talk to people in the business and you learn something. I mean, no matter where you're at, I talk to people. I just got out of a lunch talking to a friend who is buying up value add acquisitions, like 10 unit here and there, but he's got some stuff figured out that people who own these big buildings don't have figured out. You know, the, the sexy thing with these big buildings is, you know, I've got this big property, but they end up owning, you know, 2% of the big property. <laughs> Whereas this guy, you know, he's got the 10 units and he's only 50 percent. He's making way more money than these guys who are doing the sexy stuff. So, you oh, just, man, you're going to you're going to hurt. You're going to touch a yeah, lot of uh, touch I, a lot of buttons with that I, one. 
I'm just being real, man. I mean, what are we really here for? Are we, are we in are we in here for the accolades and, and people patting your back, or is it really, you know, to have a profitable business? I know what I'm here for, you know. So there's just so much to learn and so many resources. A hundred percent. I a hundred percent agree. So let's talk about you touched on YouTube University, right? And that's something that I've used in my own journey to commercial real estate. YouTube University, looking at courses like in this day and age, you know, how do you get started in real estate development? What do you think is the best way to get started? The best way I would see is I would say it's very similar to how I got started, which was find somebody who's been there before. Don't recreate the will. So you find somebody that you admire their work. I did the same thing. I had where I'm sitting right now, actually, my former boss developed basically this whole neighborhood. And I had admired him and I would just show up to events that he was at. If he was speaking, I'd show up there and that's that's how I met him. And I told him I admired what he was doing. I'd love to learn more. You can really do that with any of these people. They will really appreciate it. I know a lot of people are afraid to approach, but these people who have done these great things, one, love giving back. And two, they love when you take initiative. So when you take the initiative to ask somebody, people approach me um, all the time about learning about development. I always take the meeting because I'm, that's, that's what it's about. You know, somebody did that for me. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. So that's the quickest way to accelerate it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, real estate development is a, is a whole separate beast. <laughs> and if you don't know what you are doing in real estate development, you will get hurt. When I used to work for a firm, they used to always say you get hurt in the dirt. And so for people who are trying to get into that space, you know, what are the ways, the best ways to reduce risk when jumping into to real estate development? Yeah, so we, we do a couple things. You're completely right about getting hurt in the dirt. I mean, that's that's where your real cost overruns will come. But I think it all starts first at the land acquisition. We have not bought a piece of land um, until we are ready to develop it. So we've optioned basically everything. So we'll put an option contract on something. We have a piece of land in DC. We're trying to do affordable housing in. So, so talk a little bit about for for listeners who don't know, you know what an what an option contract is. Right. And so what we will do is we will give you a price. We will either pay your full price or maybe give you a little bit more. But what we want is the optionality to go through whatever approvals and entitlements we need to do before we buy the land. And so in that situation, why would a seller do it? One, they're going to get either their full price, which people are going to, you know, lowball them ahead of time, or they're going to get extra money. Um, and two, that gives us time to be able to go through approvals, get whatever funding, line up whatever funding we need to do. Um, and it gives us flexibility. What you don't want to do is carry land because land eats three meals a day. So that's, mm. that's one thing that you definitely don't want to do. Two is you make your money in the buy. You still want to buy at a competitive, competitive basis. And so your plan needs to be commensurate with the low land price. And there's a couple ways you can do that. Sometimes we have smaller units than what somebody else will put there. If it's an existing asset, we'll be able to add a bedroom or there's some type of value add there that other people didn't see. So we make sure that we're not getting ourselves in trouble by paying too much for a property. So it's really focused on from a, from a reduction of risk perspective, your, your number one focus should be on the due diligence side of things, right? Similar to probably just all real estate, just figuring out more specifically when you're developing dirt is knowing exactly what you're getting into, right? From, 
talking to your civil engineers, to your geotechnicals, making sure that the dirt isn't soft. Are you looking at that too when you're evaluating these opportunities during due diligence? Yes. Yeah, so a couple of things we do on the dirt side, as far as we always get a geotech out there early, we go through soil boring. So we'll have somebody bring out a big rig and they'll come out and they'll go 15, 20 feet into the ground to tell us from the soil. We'll go get the soil tested. And then from there, we'll find out if there's anything environmental that we need to worry about on a site like that. So that's super, super important. Getting your phase one and your phase two are super important as well. Um, so we just make sure that you have a great due diligence process. We have an outline process that we follow on every single project that's programmatic. If we don't check all those boxes, we're not buying the property. I think that comes with, number one, expertise and just being structured. You know, I, my model is, you know, if I'm doing something consistently, I want to make sure that I have a structure, specifically due diligence, right? And when you're raising capital, when you have how much dollars down on this deposit, a lot of that capital may or not be hard, non-refundable, right? Yeah. But the cost that you incur, and that's why they say, you know, pre-development is, is the riskiest part. And so I think understanding the due diligence process is probably the number one phase of just the actual physical part of real estate development. In addition to, obviously, you need to know how to underwrite and, and model and project and do all the basic things that you have learned from the ULI courses that you that you took to, you know, when you're get when you were getting into the space. So I would imagine that in order for you to, or you know, with respect to your success today, you were able to develop great teammates, great partners. You know, talk about the importance of having good partners, finding those contractors or finding those professionals that help you be successful in the real estate development space. Yeah, I think that the number one thing you can do is find good partners. Uh, a partnership is really a marriage. You are going to be with this person in real estate development for two to three years at minimum. That's really the quickest you can build a building, entitle it, get it leased up. Usually it's gonna be five, and a lot of times it's more than that. And so you really need to choose smartly. One, make sure your temperaments match. I mean, that's, that's a big thing. Make sure you guys can work together, that your work styles make sense, that you guys complement each other and it's not you know adversarial. We've all been in a bad partnership and it's not a good thing and you can't get out of it easily. There's no easy, easy unraveling it without the pain, right? So that, that's one. Um, two, make sure that they have the experience. Really make sure there's a lot of people out here, I'm probably rough a lot of feathers, but there's a lot of people out here that have pretend experience. You have to be careful about that. So make sure that you talk through what the person's done and you can tell immediately whether or not they're the real deal, whether or not they've actually done it, whether or not they've been in the weed. That stuff is super, super important. And then three, references. Who else knows this person? You know, what have other people's experience been with them? It, most likely, if somebody isn't a great person to work with, it's not a secret. You know, you can you can ask around and you can figure it out. You don't want to take everybody's advice, right? But I would just say you want to do your due diligence and make sure there's somebody you can work with and make sure you're both bringing something to the table. Me personally, I don't like any partnership where I don't feel like I'm pulling my weight. You know, then I'm not going to feel good in the partnership and I may act up, you know. So I, I need to be in a place where I feel like I'm an adequate part of the partnership and I'm really pulling my own weight. 
partnerships are like marriages, easy to get into, hard to get out of. Yes. You know, it brings me back to a story like my first deal back when I was fixing and flipping like four years ago. You know, I hired a mentor that I thought was, you know, I thought that he was legit and it turned out to be the best lesson I've had in real estate, but the worst deal I've done in real estate because I ended up losing money on that deal. He didn't do exactly what he said he was going to do. He was too busy with other stuff. I mean, everything occurred on that deal. And so partnerships are is something that people need to really focus on and pay attention to, especially from the due diligence process of not only just learning that personality because everyone can't work with each other, right? Right. But I think when you have those discussions up front and you you understand, you know, what this person's true nature is and, you know, what true experience do they have and what they can actually bring to the table and just have those free discussions, I think that's the best way to naturally build a healthy partnership for you guys to go out there and be successful. The hard part is taking what's on things like social media and digging through that and figuring out, you know, is this person who they, you know, who they say that they are. So talk about, you know, finding the best professionals that help you be successful in this space. You know, if someone is looking for like an architect, are there some tips that you use to find good architects, solid geotechnical providers? You know, how, how do you find those professionals to help you be successful? Yeah. So just, just to touch on, I mean, we even just talked about the partnership thing. One of the professionals you need in your team is a good attorney. Quickly, early in the partnership, lay out what, whose role is what, so that it's clear so you don't have to do that down the road. I've seen a lot of things go left because the expectations weren't necessarily there. But on the architecture side, one, I look at previous work. That's always the best you know, predictor of what the future will be. Two, I look at, and I've, I've had a habit of hiring a lot of up and coming architects. I mean, I'm, I've been an up and coming developer this whole time. And so I've tried to do my best. If I see somebody talented that I think you know, has a real future, I make sure I bet them. I make sure that they have done the work before, maybe for somebody else. But a lot of times it's funny, you'll go to a bank. I'll go to a bank with a new architect, right? And this new architect could have been at a large firm, Coracope and Mocked, or one of these big residential firms. And the bank will say, well, we're not gonna hire them because they're a new architecture firm. But this person was the actual person doing all the work for these huge deals at this other firm and the bank won't be able to wrap their head around it. So I've made a habit of saying, hey, look, what is their actual experience? What did you do at this large firm? Okay, you were running the day-to-day -day of six jobs. You know, you, you, you built eight buildings already. Like you were the person actually doing the work. Okay, well, that's good enough for me. You know, just because there's a different name in front of it and it's your own company doesn't mean that you don't have the skill set. Um, so I've been really particular about that. A lot of referrals from people in terms of like the engineering team, the MEP engineer, the civil. I always go with um, somebody who is well known, who knows how to get through whatever municipality it is. That's another very important thing. So we're doing work in D.C. and I may not use the same person that I would use on a Baltimore deal because this person in D.C. knows a specific person in the permitting office that we need to get our questions answered quickly and accelerate our permit process. So being strategic about who you choose and what relationships they have is super, super, super important. Uh, so a lot of referrals, a lot of experience. And in terms of contractors, that is a totally 
totally <laughs> it's it's his own beast trying to figure out the contractor equation and the best thing is there that's our favorite part of this business right <laughs> yeah. finding good contractors the the best thing there i would say referrals weigh even heavier there because there's so 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 much smoke and mirrors in that game that you just don't know it you can choose the person with the lowest bid and that may not always be a good thing because if you don't have the real expertise to be able to look through and tell where their bid isn't right which candidly most people don't like you really have to be in in the weeds to be able to really go through one of these estimates and and see you know where everything's hidden so that is a strong strong referral business and with any of my teams i try to do repeat business because you spend so much time trying to find good people that i'd rather just pick up and stay with those people and keep it going because that whole process can take six months just you know finding good people you don't want to keep doing that you want to rinse and repeat if you got something that's working this business is all about relationships and that's the same thing that i do as well with on the case of contractors too right because yeah. you, you work so hard to find someone good that you can trust that has experience that can actually deliver and then being able to give them constant work would probably does 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 it work for you as far as pricing as well? Do they tend to give you better pricing when you when you give them consistent work as well? Yeah. So once a contractor knows that we will execute, we will close, you start getting a little bit better pricing. That's always been a, a good thing. And we've even offered contractors chances to invest with us. You know, we've we've done things like that to get them on the same side of the table. I'm giving you guys all the secrets here. But we've even done things like that to get them on the same side of the table and get people aligned. You want to align their interests. I've never been a person. There are so many people that pocket watch on everybody else within the transaction. If you were getting a good return for your investors and it makes sense for you, I don't necessarily care what the other person is doing. You know, I want to make sure all of our interests are aligned and we're all doing well on each project so that we can continue to keep this puppy rolling. It comes down to predictability of outcome too, right? Especially in the world of real estate development and when costs can be all over the place and there's a lot of different moving parts and being able to have that alignment of interest is definitely a part of having a predictable outcome, I think as well too. So talk about your first real estate development deal. What was that first deal? And maybe give us some numbers or, or you know, if you guys already stabilized the project. My first one was a little bit different because it was a family office type deal. Somebody had knew that I was wanting to go out on my own and he had a piece of land. And so that one was a was a little bit already teed up, but I'm going to go to my favorite deal and also probably the hardest, which was one of my most recent ones that we closed on. And so that was about 149 units. It's out in Highland Town in Baltimore. We had realized that there was a huge demographic shift where incomes were coming up in the neighborhood. And it was one of the um, top growing neighborhoods in the U.S. It was like number 11, which was, which was awesome. So it was like this was a this was from a micro scale. This was a unique outlier in the Baltimore market. And so we went over to, to Highland Town. I had a friend of mine from high school show me a piece of land, ask me what I would do with it, told him I would do housing on it. Uh, I immediately went out and put it on a contract. And that's a huge, huge gem. Put it on a contract in your name. He who controls the, he who controls the land controls the deal. It's super, super important to real estate development side. So I put it on a contract in my name and I immediately went out to go start raising money in order to do the design. Now, when you say just, when you say you put it on the contract in your name, are you, you're talking about your personal name or an LLC? 
in an LLC in my company's, okay. in my company's name. So in CLD Partners' name, I went and signed on the dotted line. Yeah. So okay. that that was the first step. And what's been interesting is that I've been able to do a lot of this with no money down. So that was ended up being about a $34 million project. I didn't have to put any money up front into it. And so the, the secret was I got control of the deal by getting the land. As soon as that happened, I had a huge problem, right? We have a large deposit due. The land cost about two and a half million, right? And so I had, what, 30 days to come up with a large deposit to stay under contract. So I immediately basically went on a press run trying to find partners in this. And I had talked to several people that I had been improving relationships with a couple firms. And I had a local firm who had done some work in the area. And I approached them and said, hey, look, I've got this piece of land. Would you be willing to go 50-50 um, with me on it? And they said, okay. I said, what I need is I obviously don't have the capital to, to one, put the land under control, but two, to get it to the point where it can get to financing. So in order to get the land to financing for a development project of that size, it can cost you a million and a half dollars. Literally, after two years of work, we basically had a stack of paper that was this thick that was worth a million and a half dollars. That's that's literally all we had to show for it. And the project could have still went left at that point. And so we we went, we ended up partnering up. They came in, they put in the money for the pre-development, which ended up being great. Went through the whole entitlement process. And my side of the deal was I'm going to run it from start to finish. I'm going to do the sweat. I'm going to put the land on the contract. I'm going to hire the design team. I'm going to manage the design team day to day. I'm going to work through all the entitlements. And we ended up having issues with easement and land control. There's all types of things that pop up. We had a we had a 10 inch sewer line running through the middle of the property that that screwed everything. Mm. Up. We had BG&E poles. There's all types of things that go wrong throughout this. So I'm going to run the day to day of the deal and then eventually get it to financing. So we end up spending basically 18 months getting through permitting, entitlements and all that. And this basically gets us to March of 2020. So now we've got a permit uh, and we are ready to seek financing. It was a $33 million deal. We needed what, $8 million? Anyway, we needed, we needed maybe a $25, $25 million loan at, from, the, from the jump, right? And so we went out to go get that loan on March 1st. By March 20th, uh, we had a little thing called the pandemic hit. And oh boy, <laughs> and the that, that was probably fun. Yeah. And the financial markets completely, completely froze at this point. So we went from being able to get 65 percent debt on the project to only 50 percent. So our equity requirement just went up by three, four million dollars overnight. That's tough. Yeah, it, it, it's very tough. And this one was particularly hard because, one, I had been in business for a while, but this was the first big project that we were getting going. And candidly, we may not have made it if we didn't get this done. And so I had a lot riding on it, trying to get this done. And we just had to start improvising. So we ended up trying to put together this capital stack. We ended up finding a source of financing called CPACE, which is energy efficient financing. Uh, that came in and that got our LTV, our debt, all the way up to 80% from 50%. So they came in and plugged 30%, which ended up being that, that was great. Beautiful for us, right? <laughs> and it was only at five. Gap right there. 
Right. So it was at a very reasonable rate. It was very close rate to our construction debt. It wasn't 12 or 20 like some of these other mezzanine type financings can be. So that was awesome. And then to get the equity, we ended up crowdfunding it. So we went to a company called CrowdStreet. We signed up, went through an extensive, extensive vetting process. And it was ended up being a great platform. Um, it's just a very, very serious type of deal. I thought that the vetting would be different for something like this, but it was even harder than other equity sources. So went through this long vetting process, did a webinar, basically went to go raise money from people across the country, ended up raising part of the equity we needed, about $4 million. We got the other four from a private equity firm out in Denver. And uh, at that point, we had the capital stack and we were able to get under construction and get it going. And now uh, that it will be done and we'll be delivering our first units in November and rents are looking good. So we're, we're feeling confident and bullish on it. What an amazing story. The first thing that jumped out to me was when you said, get control of the deal, right? And I read Peebles Principles too a few years ago when I was getting into this space, right? And that's something that he talked about, right? He said, uh, controlling the deal is more important than cash. Yes. And once you have control of the deal, now you can go out there and you can talk because if you didn't have control of the deal, you know, there there are people out there that might try to go behind you, right? And they they probably would have saw this this great opportunity, but the fact that you took the risk to get control of the deal, even when you didn't have all of the money lined up, right? You had to go out there and raise it. But the fact that you have control, now we can play ball, right? Right? That's 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 something that's that's super important, right? Right, right. And and also for the people's principle, we talked about getting stuff under contract. Their price, my terms. That was a huge thing. So we give them their price, exactly what they wanted for the land. We're gonna we're gonna overpay for it and you know, we're gonna overpay a little bit for it, but we're gonna get our time to be able to take this through the entitlements. And that was the same option structure that that you use, right? For that we talked about earlier on. Exactly. The same principle over and over again. That's that's really cool, man. That's that's a great story. The fact that you were able to really push through, even though, you know, there were a ton of obstacles from a crowdfunding perspective or just from um, COVID and trying to, you know, bridge the gap between the 50 percent and the 80 percent. And I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of uh, rough nights, but I think it just comes back to just your tenacity, right, from your character of just by any means necessary. You know, when I think of you and I hear your story, that's what I get is by any means necessary, I'm going to get a shot. And, you know, when you're able to put yourself in positions, you put yourself in a position to be successful and actually get that shot. Right. So what challenges are you facing today in, in real estate development and why not just, you know, just look at stabilized deals? I mean, we have the construction issue from supply chain management or maybe the, the labor force. Why real estate development? You know, maybe what challenges are you having today and why not just focus on just acquisitions? So. The, the short answer is we are doing acquisitions, too. I think that's another leg of the stool that helps make us, you know, recession resistant. So we have that. We have affordable housing and we have regular market rate ground up. But our core business is still market rate ground up slash work workforce. Our, our market rate is a little bit different. Instead of being on main and main, we like to be on second and second. We're in emerging neighborhoods with diverse di demographics, which is really like our bread and butter. That's what we really like. But in terms of ground up development, what's really hard here, you hit the nose on the head, you hit the nail on the head when you said supply chain. Construction costs are going crazy right now. 
not only that, it there's a ton, a ton of unpredictability. You talked a lot about certainty of execution earlier. It's become a real issue. So on that project that we just talked about, we just ran through the whole deal, our switch gear. Switch gear is basically um, a piece of electronic equipment that allows you to power the whole building. It distributes the power throughout the whole building. And I mean, it's essential. Why it's essential early on during construction is because there are several finishes that are vulnerable to the elements uh, as you do construction. So humidity, for instance, can ruin flooring. And so your flooring contractor will not install your flooring if there's a certain amount of humidity. And we can't get rid of the humidity if we can't fire up our air conditioners. We can't fire up our HVAC until we get to switch gear. So switch gear ends up being a real issue with getting on schedule. Well, our switch gear disappeared overnight. And you have a situation where it's such a competitive market that you have people offering. I mean, we had somebody offer $100,000 to take our switch gear uh, and they'll sell it to them. You know, <laughs> they'll sell it to them. You lose your switch gear overnight if you're not willing to, to pay the piper. So we ended yeah. up having to really, really drill down on what time things will get there and making sure that we're talking to each of our suppliers and we're getting stuff on time. On top of that, there are huge overruns caused by caused by the pandemic luckily uh, we we did a decent job of controlling it one thing that we did with uh so far our wood which was the largest scope of work in this particular job right this is probably i had to guess eight million dollars worth of wood and so we ended up at the time when we started our contract wood was through the roof Wood was up over 100% year to year. It was, it was going crazy. It was a crazy time. That was yeah. a crazy time, man. It was a crazy time. So you know what that does to a budget. That completely blows. You can't just double a price <laughs> in a budget. And so what we said, you know, we're, we're ready here. We're kind of in this cowboy mode. Let's just keep moving forward. Let's not buy the wood yet. Let's not lock it in. Let's hope that it's going to come down to a reasonable level. And so we rolled the dice and about eight months later, we ended up locking in a price for the wood that was cheaper than what it was originally. We actually saved a little bit of money on it. But if we had waited three weeks after when we actually pulled the trigger, it had popped right back up and we would have been mm. in a bad situation. So we got bailed out a little bit there, but that's just kind of the supply chain type of juggling act that you're having to do right now. Lumber was just crazy over the past 12 to 24 months. I mean, I think right now, the last time I looked at it was this a few days ago and um you know it was trading around like 500 to 600 per board foot or something like that which is right. great compared to where it was yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, 12 right. months ago 1200 1400 1600 it was going crazy so that's that's yeah people were um stealing lumber out here you know yeah. it was just out of yeah. control it was probably um a, a tough time to kind of stomach that but tell me a time where you felt stuck and frustrated in your journey you know you've had a ton of experience transitioning into you know being a principal of your firm you know talk about some some somewhere in your journey where you felt stuck frustrated you know maybe a breakthrough moment where you were able to maybe develop some processes or hire someone or something that you know helped you get to the next side maybe our listeners today are going through the same struggle and would love to kind of benefit from you and how you overcame that. Yeah, I think the the breakthrough moment would be a part of that deal right there. You know, we we were having a lot of trouble. So the thing about real estate development that's interesting is that 
you don't get paid a lot of cash still for a while. It takes a, a very long time until you, so it's going to take you two, three years to build it, right? And then you get the building, then you have to lease it up. So you've got another 12, 15 months of lease up. And then you don't get paid until like maybe a year after that out of cash flow and stuff like that. So in order to keep, it's extremely, extremely capital intensive business, which is, which is why the business looks the way it does. It's usually older people who have had money for a while that are in the business because it's very hard to, to support yourself in between. So trying to get these projects through approvals and stuff, and at the same time trying to figure out how to eat was a very, very difficult thing. And what ended up happening for me is that I ended up starting getting creative and, and not being afraid to you know ask bold questions. And one of which was, hey, look, if I bring you this project, can I get paid part of my fee up front? Like if I bring you this value that will get done, can I get my fee up front? And so that has been huge for me, just not being afraid and like humbling yourself to ask those questions. Cause I, I don't like asking anybody for anything, right? Like it's just not, it's not in my nature. I don't, I don't really enjoy it, but at a certain point you, you need to do that. And I think the, the biggest thing is do everything you can to try to make yourself successful. So I will write down what are the, the 10 to 20 things I can be doing right now to try to help myself. And the thing about entrepreneurship is that you are not guaranteed that any of those will work. So the only, the only recourse, the only way to prevail is to just do everything you can and hope one of them works. And so that's, that's what I've done. You know, you gotta have the grit to stay in there and trust that if you do the right thing, you treat people right and you do everything you can, that'll work out because a lot of times it involves you taking a step with taking a step forward without being able to see the path. You know, I never saw the next step. I didn't know whether or not I was going to make it through that project. And there's been a million different moments like that, but keeping the faith and doing everything you can to help yourself is uh, the best course of action. And that, and that's, that's part of, I'm, I'm getting excited, man. That's, that's part of the mogul marathon. That's yeah. the stuff that people don't talk about. You know, we, we, we sit on here and we look at these IG reels and we look at these, you know, beautiful pictures when people post, I just close this and that, but like to get to that high level, like you have to, for, for the ones who started from the bottom, from the ground up with no money, just working, trying to make, you know, the, the trying to create a destiny for themselves, trying to create their own path. You know, that is the, that is what you have to go through. You have to have sleepless nights, right? You have to put things out on the table, even though you might not be able to put it back into your pocket, right? You have to find a way how to eat, especially in, in the world of private equity. You make your, most of your money on the, on the transaction side, whether it's the front end or the refinance or selling after, after the promote, you know, there's the in-between side of things, you know? And, and for me, that's where my cash flow portfolio comes in from the single family stuff. Right. And, and allow you to kind of keep things going and keep keep the lights on. And that's the stuff that people don't talk about, like in this business. Chris, let me ask you something. You know, what, what's your secret sauce to success? I think I already know a little bit about it. You know, I would say your hustle and your grind. But, you know, to you, what's your secret sauce? Yeah. I mean, you, you again, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's, it's persistence and it's grit. I, you know, I wasn't number one in my class. I wasn't the, the, the smartest guy. I wouldn't have blown you away with any of that, but I am persistent and I do, I think, a good job at strategy. I am able to distill a business plan or decide a path to go based on previous knowledge. And it, again, it's not about, it's really about not recreating the will. These people were successful ahead of time. 
let me work backwards. What were the five things they did to make them successful? And just following that path and, and it works out. But grit to be able to hang in there is the biggest, biggest thing that, that will determine your success, I would say. Success, you know, always leaves clues. You know, never try to reinvent the wheel unless you want to <laughs> deal with a lot of pain and a lot of headaches. So if you were to start this whole thing over, is there something that you would do differently? I would say that, you know, we've, we've had a lot of success. I mean, we've grown a company from, from zero units to now about 800 in development, about 200 million. We've, we've done well. So it's, it's hard for me to say that like I would have did something necessarily differently because I'm just thankful for that. That's somewhere I never thought that I would be, especially at this time. But one thing that I would say, and one piece of advice that I would give people is what we touched on earlier is don't go for the sexy, the big project necessarily. I mean, that stuff is great. Love doing it. We'll continue to do it, but focus more on what is the net to you. That's a super, super important metric. So if you can buy smaller things and you can control a significant amount of deal, 50%, you know, hundred percent of the equity, then look at deals like that too, because that's important to build a foundation and build your foundation of passive income because that's going to be your moat. What I started doing was I had these large projects that, you know, took three to five years to execute and they were great once they did. But the issue was I hadn't solved the passive income problem before that. So I was end up having problems. I mean, I had trouble paying rent, you know, sometimes we had some real moments <laughs> in there, but if I had built up my passive income portfolio first and I had that moat to protect me in that foundation, it allows you to do the bigger stuff. So I would say start small, try to own as much of your assets as possible and then start to, to scale up. So that's one thing that I probably would have did differently, but you know, I have absolutely no complaints about my career as well. I think that's golden right there because I think a lot of people get lost in this business thinking, you know, I got to go buy this big assets or I need to have this 500 unit portfolio and I need to go, you know, buy this or syndicate this, like, you know, this thousand unit portfolio. But, you know, what are we in this business for? You know, for me, I'm in this business for generational wealth and cash flow. And so how you get to that point is everyone has different methodologies but i think remaining to that core and like you said build that building that foundation especially when you're getting into real estate private equity when things are can be more transactional than just a regular fix and flip you know for people who are trying to jump from a fix and flip which is like what six months or so compared to your projects which is like three years <laughs> you know to turn things around it's a total different ball game so Man, that was uh, really golden. So, Chris, um, let's talk about you know your your um, your development. I think you're working on also an, another project called the Sheridan Affordable Housing Project in DC. Sure. Yeah, we're working on a project called the Sheridan in DC. It's my it's my latest muse, and it is about 70 units in some Ward Eight. And I think what's really great about that, I mentioned earlier, we like working in diverse communities that look like us. That's a that's a huge thing for me. And also, I really pride ourselves on being able to do the full spectrum of housing. So we can do your, your luxury market rate on the waterfront, if that's what it takes. It's not necessarily a favor, but what we really like is mixed income. So we want to provide a certain amount of units that are affordable. We want workforce housing, you know, teachers, doctors, whoever. We want to make sure teachers, nurses, whoever, we want to make sure that they have a place to live. And the people that really run a city, 
you know, can actually live inside that sitting. And in DC, there's been a real challenge with that. And so what I like about the sharing is that we're not just trying to do affordable housing, but we're trying to do mixed income housing. So instead of just doing the tax credits, which basically limits you to 60 or 50% of AMI, we're gonna stretch it all the way to 80% by doing income averaging. And we think that that's good for the neighborhood because you want all types of incomes in a neighborhood for it to really be successful. So I'm super excited about bringing that. It'll be the first mixed income building like that, a first income average building uh, in Ward 8, maybe one of the first in, in DC. Um, and I think it's just really important to try to bring that product to a neighborhood that could really use some inclusive new development. So we're, we're excited about it. That sounds like a really, really good project. Uh, I'm excited to 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 see it uh, come to fruition. Chris, man, I really appreciate you being on the show. I mean, we talked a lot about just your journey, how to get into real estate development, what things to look for, you know, building a team. You touched on some things about building a foundation before getting into real estate development. So there were a ton of golden nuggets. Thank you for being on our show. Thank you to the listeners today for tuning in to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. And just remember, real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. Run your own race. Thanks, Chris. Definitely. Thank you, man. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.